Please join me in prayer. Loving God, we give thanks for the joy of this day, for the sunshine streaming through our windows. We ask that you would send your light into our souls, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts may be truly acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Well, I guess if you came here this morning thinking that you were a disciple of Christ, you know better by now. I mean, I may be wrong. There may be some of us who've actually cut ourselves off completely from our family so that there's nothing to hold us back from doing the will of God. There may be some of us who have chosen a purpose for our life that is so publicly critical of church and state that it might even get us killed. Or there may be some of us here who have given up all of our possessions, all of them, so the time we spend buying, going online to order them, maintaining, protecting all of that stuff, all that time is free now to give to God. Are there any hands out there? No, you won't see mine either. You know, Jesus, this sounds a little cult-like. It's like what you do for vulnerable and gullible people once you've brainwashed them and then you tell them what's required to be a part of the movement and it's hard to undo it. And it's interesting that Luke notes he was saying this to large crowds at a time when the Roman Empire was keeping a pretty close eye on large crowds in that part of the world, looking for anything slightly subversive or out of line and ready to pounce. This passage has gotten me to think about membership and discipleship, membership in congregations like ours and part of the Christian movement, and discipleship in that kind of movement, and where they're different and where they overlap. And I forgot that it's become the time that I need these. I've also begun to think about the costs and responsibilities associated both with membership and discipleship. Now, like many churches that are on the middle or left side of the theological spectrum, we like to say no matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. And that's true. We believe Jesus has that kind of welcome, and we are to embody that kind of welcome. It's also to undo some of the harm that churches have done in the past to some of us where church has been more like an exclusive club, where you have to do certain things, or you have to believe certain things, or you have to give a certain amount of money in order to belong. We also believe that we have a strong center in this kind of Christian church, which is Jesus Christ and the cross, but we also have porous boundaries, so you can find your way in by whatever road brought you here. But sometimes I get a little concerned that when it comes to membership, we have made the bar so low, and we get the standards that are low. When I came here, I said that I think we need to start telling people who want to join the church that... You're always welcome, but if you want to become a member, there are certain responsibilities and costs to it. We want you to make a pledge to the financial well-being and share your resources, and we want you to step in and to get involved in some sort of way. If you want to just keep coming to worship day in, Sunday in, Sunday out, and worship with us, you are always welcome. All are welcome. But membership is a different step, a different kind of commitment. Now, there was resistance to this approach here in this congregation and in my last congregation. And believe me, I'm not the only pastor in the main line who is saying this. It's a widespread understanding of how we need to think about church membership. 
But I will say I've been grateful to the membership classes to which I've said this. They have stepped up and stepped into our life, and I think we are all spiritually richer because of it. I mean, if you want to go join one of the temples in town, first of all, the rabbi is obliged by halakhic tradition to deny you three times from converting to Judaism. But then, if you decide to join, they will charge you dues. There is a sliding scale for this, but they're dues. Just like the country club, the fitness club, the kids' soccer program, any community organization, even in the capitalist sphere, like becoming a member of Costco or Amazon Prime. I've been very happy, particularly over the summer and the spring, when people have come and experienced our worship for the first time, and they come up to me very enthusiastically and say they want to become a member. It shows me that they can taste and see what's going on in this place. They feel the welcome. They feel the good vibe. They see the very best in this congregation fully on display on Sunday mornings. But I always say to them, stick around a while. See what it feels like. Try us for a few more weeks, a few more months, and then we can talk about joining the church. As I often also say in membership classes, at some point we are bound to disappoint you like any community will. Either the pastors will disappoint you, the staff, or other members will disappoint you. And what will it mean for you to hang in there with us as we keep trying to figure out this faith business together? But back to Luke gospel and Jesus out there with the large crowds, I sometimes wonder if what Jesus was actually trying to do was to winnow out the people who were really going to go with him, because he knew how it was all going to end up in his earthly life. And so he was saying, look, folks, I'm all in, but if you're going to do this with me, if you're going to go all the way to Jerusalem all the way to the high priests and their interrogation, all the way to Pontius Pilate and the Roman governor, all the way to Golgotha and the cross, you've got to be extremely committed. And those are the only people I can have around me going forward. And think about how much it's going to cost you to make that commitment. I mean, if you were going to build your own building, you'd need to figure out how much for the architectural plans, the lot, the building permits, the contractors, their materials and labor, not to mention how you're going to stay, where you're going to stay, and how you're going to afford it while you're waiting for that to be built. Or if you're a king going to war against another king, you better be sure you have enough ammunition and soldiers and the will of the people and the treasury to back it up. By the gospel accounts, only 14 people took up this call to follow Jesus. What did the rest of them do? Well, as one of my favorite preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor, has said in a brilliant sermon on this text, some of those who heard him that day knew they could not follow him. They had families that they did not hate, lives that they still loved, and possessions that meant a great deal to them. They may have admired the people who could walk away from all that, but they knew they were just not such people. So they went home instead of to Jerusalem. Some of them, no doubt, relieved to have had the choice put so starkly that there really wasn't any choice, while there were others who could not stop thinking about it, what it would have felt like to step out of the crowd, to step right up to Jesus without checking in with anyone first and say, okay, I'll do it. I've just done it. Let's go. That evening, those who did not take that call sat around their supper tables 
and there was only really one topic of interest, following Jesus, what it meant, where it might lead, why he made it so hard. Now, mind you, they were not Jesus' disciples. We should probably call them friends of the disciples. But that did not mean they could act as if they had never heard a word of what Jesus said. That night, some of them even dreamed about following him, and a few of them woke up panting from the nightmares, while others wept upon waking up. And once the sun was high enough for them to focus on the chores, the children, the sheep, the crops, plenty of them wished they had gone with him, but then they settled back into their regular lives. Except that sometimes, when the children were sick, and the brothers-in-law were not speaking to one another, and the parents had grown so old that they could not remember anyone's name anymore, one of those friends of the disciples would take a deep breath, remember what Jesus said, and think, this isn't everything. Life goes a lot deeper than this. What I hear in Jesus' instructions is something about the fact that the life of faith should be something adventurous. It should be something that compels us to take risks for all the right reasons, for good and godly reasons. Faith should be something that compels us to give up things that make us comfortable, that offer us a sense of security, to give them up for the greater good. Faith should be something that pushes us beyond the limits of where we think we can go. It makes me think about running a marathon. Now, I know that not all of us here are meant to run marathons. Certainly, I am not meant to run a marathon or have any desire to run a marathon. But a few years ago, I was invited to watch the Boston Marathon from the finish line, from the high, flat roof of Old South Church. And at first, there was just a lot of time on our hands, and you could look down the empty alley of Boylston Street, completely cleared out for the race amid the tall buildings, And then at one moment, a wheelchair came around from Gloucester Street, and an express train of all sorts of wheelchairs came through. And then you waited a while longer. And then some of the elite runners, the elite of the elite, the people who train their whole lives, who are dedicated, whose calling is to run marathons, the people who win them, came through. And then you started seeing really great athletes who have trained hard for this race coming through, people who are in top-notch shape. And then the minutes, the hours went by, and you began to notice all kinds of people. The folks in army fatigues carrying a backpack. The dad pushing his kid with cerebral palsy in a wheelchair. You saw people in bunny suits and tutus. All sorts of people who had taken up the call to run a marathon, not to win it, not even that they might do it again, but because they were inspired by that act of training and preparing for this adventure. This past week, I saw a movie about running a marathon. It may have seemed like it was a frou-frou film, but it actually had some really good messages in it. Brittany runs a marathon. You may have seen the trailer, and I won't give anything away that's not in the trailer, But she's a young woman, 27 years old, who realizes her life is not going how she wants it to go. She's partying too much. She's not making enough money. She's looking at her friends' Instagram and Facebook and Twitter accounts and the way they're presenting themselves and think that life is passing her by as others are getting on with it. She goes into the doctor hoping to get a a Yelp-approved doctor, I should say, 
because she wants to get a prescription for Adderall. But he can see right through what she's doing, and he sees that she has dangerously high blood pressure, obesity, and he says, you need to lose about 55 pounds, to which she says, you realize you're asking me to lose a Siberian husky, like a medium-sized working dog. And he says, yes. Well, she eventually takes up the charge to run, and she starts by just doing a block, then two blocks. Eventually, she does a 5K, which nearly wipes her out, but she realized it wasn't to win it. It was just to complete it. And eventually, through many starts and stops, through many dips, through setbacks, she eventually runs the New York Marathon. It's based on a true story. And at one point, she's especially discouraged because her weight, which has been going down, is starting to come back up. She has a debilitating injury. A very important parent figure in her life says, you're changing your life, and running this marathon was never about your weight. It was about you taking responsibility for yourself. So it makes me wonder, with Jesus' harsh, uncompromising words, what is Jesus asking us to take responsibility for in our faith? It may not be for swearing our family, but thinking more about who are the people outside the circle. This is the guy who said, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. How are we called to step out and do that more for people who need it? Maybe you're not called to stand at the border and advocate for terrorized immigrant families and stand up to a harsh imperial government or dedicate your life to working with the unhoused on Boston Common. But maybe we can lend our support, our time, our funds to help causes that are the kinds of things Jesus might do if he lived in Boston. Maybe it means that we need to give up some things like just some of our expendable income to help others or our gas-guzzling SUV to help preserve God's creation, just to give up some of that which makes it comfortable so that we might help someone else become a little more comfortable. Back to my preacher friend and mentor, Barbara Brown Taylor, because she says for Jesus' original hearers, the ones who went home and decided not to take up the hard, uncompromising call, there were days when there was something going on in town that was just not right. But the unspoken consensus seemed to be that it was better to let it keep going on than to make trouble by saying anything about it. And one of those friends of the disciples would call up a couple of others and say, do you remember remember what Jesus said? What do you say we go and make some trouble? And sometimes when a few of those friends would hear about a family in need or a neighboring town hit by drought or some other natural disaster, they would decide to fill a wagon with some of their own stuff, not everything they owned by any means because they weren't disciples after all, but still stuff they could have made good use of. It only hurt for a minute, and then they could let it go because they remembered what Jesus said and because they knew there were some people following him who were getting by on a lot less. The basic idea seemed to be, if the disciples can do that, we can at least do this. And every now and then, of course, one of them would lose it and do something extreme like auction off the family estate and send the check to the church in Jerusalem, or find some public occasion on which to remind the Roman governor that the emperor was a straw boss. And on those days, Jesus gained a new disciple. But most days, this circle of friends just said their prayers, 
broke bread when they could, and above all, they kept the stories alive so that even people who did not have what it took to be disciples still remembered what Jesus had asked of those who followed him. Given the choice between softening his call so that they could all believe they had answered it and preserving its harsh, uncompromising beauty, even if that put it out of their reach, the friends of the disciples chose the latter. They did not go to Jerusalem. They went home instead to catch fish and have babies and start families and begin communities like ours, churches. They went home to tell other people what Jesus had said and done so that his living word continued to rouse new generations of disciples and friends just like you and me. And along the way, they found a third way to live with his high call of discipleship, neither turning away from it nor lowering it, but allowing it to shimmer high above their heads where it provoked them, disturbed them, inspired, and strangely reassured them. They may not have followed Jesus to Jerusalem, but their hearts went that direction. And after they had counted the cost of following him and come up short, he changed their lives all the same. It's why you and I are still here today, because of the disciples, certainly, but even more because of the friends of the disciples who were people more like us, and who discovered, like us, that God's love is as free as the rain. There is no extra reward for following. The following itself is its own reward. And while the dry world waits in eager anticipation for new disciples to step out of the crowd, people like Peter and Paul and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King Jr. and Dorothy Day and Mother Teresa, Teresa of Avila, Oscar Romero, Desmond Tutu, Still, the gospel is given freely to all of us who are God's friends. So let us, you and I, continue to pray together. Let us sing. Let us go out on the lawn this afternoon and break some bread and share our table and welcome one another. And especially, let us welcome the outcast, the stranger, the refugee, the immigrant, the homeless, the prisoners, those in need of spiritual and physical comfort. And let us remember how much God has done for us, how this thing we call faith saves us and makes us well and keeps us moving forward. Let us make some new and enduring habits of faith, and let us give thanks to God. Amen.